Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bold Beautiful Borderline podcast. My name is Lori, and I'm here with Rachel, who's going to share a little bit about her story being a parent who has discovered that she has borderline personality disorder and share some tips about parenting um, generally and how we can raise kids that have probably better lives than a lot of us had. I think it's fair to say, right, Rachel? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Um, Thank you so much for having me, Lori. No problem. It's super, super nice to have you. So do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, your story, like why you're here? What do you want to talk about? Yes, I would love to. Um, Yeah, so I'm 29 years old. I'm from Wisconsin um, in the U.S. And I have, um, yeah, basically a passion for early childhood education and social justice. Um, I have a lot of experience working with children and families, and I have experience being in a family of my own as well. I live with my partner, and we have two young children. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. This is one of the most positive resources that I've found about BPD, and I'm really grateful that this podcast exists. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. We're like, every time anybody tells us that, it just like warms our entire souls and hearts and why. It's why we keep doing it. Just for context, before you kind of get into your story, how old are your kids, if you don't mind me asking? Um, So I have a four-year-old and an almost one-year-old. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, (laughs) why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself first, and then we can get into the whole parenting thing after. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, so my story kind of starts in borderland, I guess. (laughs) Um, So I experienced... um, some things growing up in my home, I experienced sexual abuse and I was basically sort of like that emotionally parentified child who was always told like, I'm so mature for my age. And like, um, I really, um, I can see myself in like, when we talk about like gifted kid burnout syndrome, like that is something I very much identify with. <laughs> and so I wasn't really allowed to speak about the abuse that I suffered in my home, even though my parents found out it was happening. And of course, my parents both had trauma of their own that they brought to their parenting. There was a lot of just like dysregulation and avoidance and substance abuse in my home growing up. And um, I basically, I've come to understand that I wasn't really allowed to feel anger or express any kind of resistance in my home. I basically, even as a young child, like sort of existed to read the emotional state of everybody else in my home and then sort of act accordingly instead of like the other way around, which is like, you know, parents sort of teaching you about emotions and how to regulate yourself. And I didn't really have those things. It was sort of just like stuff it down, stuff it down. (laughs) So um, I did well in school um, and I was able to basically keep my trauma sort of under wraps until I got, I think like partway through high school. Um, And so the last couple of years of high school, I would describe it as sort of living a double life. Um, I was doing well academically, but I was also having some private substance abuse issues that were getting increasingly bad um, and just generally like emotional issues, I would say. Um, So I got out of high school. I went to college. I had varying um, jobs through that experience and sort of um, a lot of like half relationships that generally had poor endings. And at the end of a particularly bad emotional uh, and romantic relationship with someone who cheated on me, um, I realized the work that I needed to do for myself because I was at the end of that, I was very like suicidal and the coping mechanisms I had basically consisted of drinking alcohol and playing sad songs on my guitar. (laughs) Um, So that's when I started trying to basically heal myself and um, trying to connect with the world again. Um, 
for a long time, I just sort of felt like I was living in a dream, I would say is like one way to describe it. And um, I was really trying to reach out and connect with nature and connect with the people around me. Um, And so I wanted to also mention that my diagnosis is actually PTSD with associative tendencies, but I do fit the criteria for BPD. And at the time of life, especially that I'm speaking of right now, I met all nine of those criteria. <laughs> um, and right. um, but I yeah, I mean, I was wondering. Yeah. Like the, yeah, the dissociation sounds like it was a really big piece for you. So I was kind of curious, was like, had that piece. been addressed? So did you get a PTSD diagnosis when you were in high school? Then no, it took me all the way until I was twenty eight. It was very oh, wow. recently. Yeah. And um, although I, I had been working with um, the same, you know, therapist since high school, but it took a really long time to, for me to even voice the, the things that were happening, like the situations that were happening or, um, you know, my emotional state, it was like, I couldn't even put words to those things. And I, it was sort of fragmented, right? And like my memory, and I'm sure that you can relate to this, is like my memory does not work in a linear fashion. It works in an emotional fashion. So like things that happened yesterday, like I have really no memory of the things that happened, um, you know, in my childhood that were traumatic. It's like it was yesterday. So though I, yeah. I have never heard anyone describe it that way, but that is so true. That kind of just blew my mind, honestly, because. I think that really speaks to like the guilt that I feel like the the kind of guilt that like keeps you up at night about things that you did years and years and years ago or, or whatever. And you're just like, okay, can I get over this? And then you can't possibly remember what you had for lunch. You know what I mean? That's such an interesting way of describing that. Yeah. Yeah. And like your body, like, you know, I don't know if it's this, like the surge of cortisol or like something, and it can be something silly too, right? Like you remember, like, you know, getting laughed at, or like last night I had a dream that I was back in high school and I was being left out of this group of girls that I wanted to hang out with, you know, and it's like you, your body remembers those things. And, um, you know, but the, but the sort of trivial things, they just kind of like, don't get stored at all. It's almost crazy. Yeah. Totally. (laughs) Watching TV with me is very annoying because I literally am like, wait, what, wait, what, wait, what all the time. Cause I like I literally remember zero things and my husband will be like, that happened five minutes ago. And I'm like, Oh, cool. Thanks for letting (laughs) me know. Like I have no concept. (laughs) I know. Yeah. Like even just like this morning, like my partner had um, a coffee cup set out that he had put sugar in like to get ready for the morning. Like he already had it prepped. And I just like, didn't even realize grab this coffee cup. And then he comes out and he's like, did you take my coffee cup? And I was like, I don't know. Did I like, I don't even know what coffee cup I grabbed. Like, (laughs) happened two seconds ago and I have no idea. Totally. <laughs> so there are five stages of PTSD. Um, and up to that point, um, speaking right now, kind of like 22, 23, I was, I had basically been cycling between the denial stage and the rescue stage. So I would minimize my problem. I would rationalize my behavior and I would project the causes of my problems to something that was outside of my control. Right. And then it would be like I woke up for a little bit and I would get into this headspace where I could see the problem and I could see my part in it, basically. And I would get myself more healthy. And then something would happen, um, you know, emotional in a relationship, or I would just slip up um, with 
alcohol or something. And then I would repeat that cycle over and over and over again. And let me tell you, Lori, it was very exhausting. <laughs> it was yeah, very it exhausting, exhausting to live that way. Yes. And so um, after that really bad breakup, um, I was finally able to work myself into basically the short-term recovery stage. So I actually uprooted, moved away from my home, um, the geographical cure, um, and basically met the person who um, would be involved in conceiving my first child. We were working at a summer camp and I was absolutely over the moon to be pregnant, but I honestly was not fully ready. And this is coming from somebody who has worked with kids since I was a kid myself. Right. How old were you? Like 25? Um, so I was 25 when I got pregnant. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And you wanted, you knew you wanted kids and all of that. Yes. I knew I wanted kids. Um, I knew, I thought, you know, I had been around enough kids and families and worked with people. And I, I thought I knew, I was like, oh yeah, I can do that. I can totally do that. And like up and so basically the infancy stage was like really fun, pretty easy emotion. I had a very easy pregnancy with my first, which was helpful. But once my daughter hit the toddler stage and was able to do things on her own, I realized like, holy shit, I have a ton of work to do. Like I am not, I've not even scratched the surface and I thought I had worked like so hard. And so there was a lot of like mom rage and I was um, medicated, taking sertraline, but I still had pretty like frequent mood swings. Um, I was not drinking at that time. So I was sober, which really helped because I could, you know, remember things day to day. Right. But I would still get like intrusive thoughts and anxiety and have so much guilt and so much shame. And, um, my child was really strong willed in ways that I was not necessarily allowed to be when I was a child, which was extremely triggering. Right. And I would get flashbacks of the unhealthy ways that my parents responded to me in those situations and be in a triggered state where I might like, if it was a particularly bad day, use some of those unhealthy tactics because that was what I had been taught, even though that wasn't when I wasn't in that state, I knew that that was not how Mm -hmm. I wanted to do things. But, um, but remembering that in those moments was extremely difficult. That makes so much sense. And I mean, I don't have kids and I don't want kids myself, but I do think part of that is because of how triggering I think having a kid would be. And like, obviously it's not the kid's fault. Like we're, we're not blaming your one-year-old daughter for this, but seeing those patterns that like we've been taught and that in a lot of ways, I mean, I don't know your perspective on this, but like probably was a huge contributing factor to our borderline personality disorder and PTSD and anxiety and depression and all eating disorders mm-hmm. and substance use and all these things. So, you know, you talked a little bit about how it was triggering for you to see her being strong-willed, which I, I always, I mean, strong-willed kids. I, I was one as well. I sit still yeah. in some, ways, some days. Did you it's also actually find... something I admire very much. Like it's a, it's, a, yeah. it's a strength, right? Totally. Absolutely. It gets you in a lot of trouble, but it is a good strength. Did you, do you find that like just having children, especially at that age, like one in four right now, the emotional regulation ability of the kids can be super triggering for you as well? Absolutely. And like, you know, again, knowing a lot about kids and, you know, having studied like child development in um, in school and stuff like that, and still wanting to sort of be in that field, the more that I learn about regulation and 
co-regulation, right? So (laughs) as the parent, you have to be emotionally regulated in order for your child to learn how to regulate. And if you are in that, you know, triggered state and kids are very intelligent, they, they know when mommy is having a hard day, they don't understand why they think it's about them. Right. And they take it like personally because hello, kids do not have a a developed prefrontal cortex. They're not able to see the world from somebody else's view. So anything that happens to them, they're taking as that's, oh, I guess that's my fault. Or I caused that to happen. Even things that they didn't cause. And, well, and yeah, I so think that we do that too. Yeah. Right. We do oh, that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, even just today at work, I was talking to someone and I like messaged them and I was like, Hey, are you good? And they're like, yeah, I'm good. And I was like, are, are you sure? And they're like, yeah, why? And then they said, am I giving you bad vibes right now? And I was like, yeah, you are. But I think it's probably about me, not you. You know what I mean? Like yes. any, any slight difference in the way that I'm perceiving somebody behaving causes me to think it's about me or that I did something wrong. And then that guilt spiral and all these things, you know, you say, yeah, like kids don't have a fully developed prefrontal cortex and they can't like determine that, but like, hell, I can't determine that. Even when a yeah. child is like, what? Cause my husband is like the best with kids and, and kids just like naturally gravitate to him. So every time we're around a child, they're obsessed with him and they completely ignore me. And then I'm like, Oh, maybe they can feel my bad vibes. Maybe I'm a bad person. Maybe I know like I shouldn't be around kids. Like, it's just like yes, thinking it's like, it. like spiraling it's, absolutely totally. yeah and like so so like you know having like a four-year-old so I mean kids tell it like it is they will find ways even if they don't necessarily have like the right words for something like they it will come out in their behavior that they are feeling you know discomfort um in the situation or like that the parent or like whatever attachment figure has anxiety, like that's going to come out in their behavior because they can sense some of those things. But don't worry. I don't think that kids are looking at you, like thinking that you have bad vibes. Like <laughs> you seem like you have great vibes. <laughs> okay, good. Good. Not as good vibes as Aaron, maybe. So that's probably why. Yeah. Just, maybe he's, yeah. <laughs> there's some kids, uh, some people that kids just really gravitate towards. That's really true. And like, I've always also been one of those people. So I know what you're talking about. And like, I don't know, it might be like face structure it might be like, you know, facial expression. Like I have no idea what it is, but yeah, I mean, kids are, kids are geniuses and like, unfortunately, or, you know, none of us asked to be here, right? <laughs> we all came into this world. We, we didn't like, like beg to come into this world that can be very confusing and um, sometimes painful. And, and yet we're all here. We have to figure out a way to make it work. And like, regardless of, like I want to be sensitive obviously because there's things happening with the law right now that's making it harder for people that don't want to be parents or like don't want to be parents to um you know maybe a child that's growing right now a blastula hello I had I had an abortion and I you know in that time period that I was sort of talking about like the 23 24 before I left um the state um and I will say without a doubt that my abortion made me a better mother because the person that I got pregnant from would not have been there. They, they, you know, totally just like never talked to me again. And I didn't want to bring a child into that. And I, uh, but, you know, obviously there's lots of circumstances where, you know, not necessarily like the pregnant person may not have wanted to be pregnant. So I just want to say that like, regardless of the circumstances um, uh, surrounding a child's birth, like, I, I wish that our society would be more 
child focused in some ways, or like not even like just focusing on kids necessarily, right? Or like special privileges or something, not like that, but just community care and community focus and understanding that the best thing for kids is going to be for the adults around them to be healthy. Yeah. And I think also like, it doesn't matter if the adults around them are the mother and father or the mother and mother right. and father and father, like just having their people that love them, regardless of like who they are is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, it's been shown that like, as long as kids have at least like, you know, one healthy relationship with an adult that that can drastically improve um, their circumstances and their, Mm -hmm. you know, self-esteem and things like that. But imagine if every single adult in our entire society was healthy and, you know, gave care or like, people that didn't like kids like at least were friendly you know totally (laughs) yeah absolutely so that's the world that I want to see and so that's the world that I'm trying to create but I can only can only control my own actions right so I just want to get back a little bit to just kind of leading up to how I figured out that I, I probably have borderline personality disorder so basically the when the pandemic came I was struggling I was in a very small apartment with a very little child and <laughs> ran out of arts and crafts games to do no. So I, I did, I started drinking again as a coping mechanism because at that point I did not identify with the words. I am an alcoholic. I just thought, Oh, you know, yeah, in college I drank. And so that was part of the denial. Um, and so I was drinking as a coping mechanism, but then I listened to a book and it's called um, Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, if you've heard of that. I um, never read, but that okay, sounds Okay, I listen to it. Yeah, yeah, I would do that. I would do that. So what's her? I'm going to write it down because adult... It's no. amazing. So it's called Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. Okay. Because I'll and, also put this yeah. in the show notes if, if you're saying it's a good Yes. Book. Oh my because, gosh. It's such yeah. a good, it's such a good resource. Um, and that, that book actually like really changed my life because instead of just knowing about my trauma, but still sort of living in my trauma, like I started to understand the intergenerational roots of my trauma, which felt timely because I had this little one and I had already known that I wanted a different life for my child. But I I think that book solidified the fact that I needed to be deliberate in my actions every single day so that I didn't just fall into the same patterns that I had grown up with Um, because it's very easy to do right. When that is like what you've seen and what, you know, I don't know that I've witnessed very many healthy relationships, healthy adult relationships in my life. And so it's like, where do you, where do you find that information? And so I basically, yeah, I basically sought out that information day by day. I was, I was working on, my triggers. I started listening to podcasts and reading books um, about, you know, child development and research on healthy parent-child relationships. I followed science-based educational like influencers and stuff on social media. And I learned the difference between emotional suppression (laughs) and self-regulation, which, you know, the suppression was more what I was engaging in, just trying to hold it all in. And it wasn't it was bursting out, right? There wasn't enough. There was too much pressure and it had to find a valve somewhere. I started to sort of hear like that voice of my mom rage coming in 
and basically realizing that that was sort of just my inner child, like crying out for things that I maybe didn't get when I was little. And I started learning everything I could about attachment theory and finding which situations my child had an insecure attachment to me in and trying to change those patterns to help them grow a more secure attachment. Um, yeah, because I was, I was, I, I can't remember where I was listening. It might've been the Huberman lab podcast, which is really excellent for science based tools. But recently I think someone on there was describing attachment and it made so much sense to me. They were like, attachment isn't just one thing. So you're not just insecurely attached. You're not just securely attached. It's actually in the different situations that you may have a secure attachment over here and an insecure attachment when you're, you know, out and about, but a secure attachment when you're at home and these certain situations happen. That made so much sense to me. I was like, oh, this is the sort of like the missing puzzle piece that I was looking for because even in my own childhood, sometimes I felt secure in certain situations, but I would say less than 50% of the time did I feel secure. And I saw something somewhere like, like responsive parenting sites that is like 70% of the time, if you can, if your child can feel secure 70% of the time, you, you're, you're good, you know? And so mm-hmm. that was really encouraging to me because I was like, okay, 70%, I can hit that. Right. Um, and yeah, so basically, um, it's really amazing how resilient children can be. And I talk to my children all the time about emotions and I try really hard to show healthy coping mechanisms. I let them know that it's not their fault when mama is sad or mad. And I, um, I try to talk through conflicts or like sports casting is sort of what you call it when like, you know, say two kids have a toy and they're kind of figuring out one takes the toy and looks at the response of the other one and the other one takes it back. And you might sit next to them and say, oh, um, you know, now you, now you have the toy and now you have the toy and you, but you don't intervene, right. Unless there's actually like some upset going on. And then you can kind of talk through those feelings if that happens. I've never heard of that before. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's our sort of like response generally as adults to like sort of put our adult understanding of things on kids and even like very young kids who are just trying to figure out the world. And so, but it's like, if we're jumping in all the time and just like, no, you do this and you hear it, then they never get to try it out. They never get to test anything out. And like, to quote the great Alfie Cohn, he says, you don't learn to make decisions by following directions, right? So right. <laughs> um, you, you learn to make decisions by making decisions and, and being allowed to make bad decisions. And that was one thing that, that my mom would do a lot when I was a kid is like, every single thing, like say there's like a play structure or something and she's standing down there like, <gasps> you know, and like, oh, like don't go on there, you know? And then as a child, you just learn, well, okay, I guess I can't do that. And I guess, you know, these other kids are better at that than I am. But like, if you give kids a chance to figure it out themselves, usually they'll surprise you. That's what I feel like. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I like, and even just looking at kids who are making decisions that like, we wouldn't make, but getting an outcome that we wouldn't have predicted. And it's like, oh, so like maybe my bias here is to like make a decision that actually doesn't make a lot of sense. And like, I can't. It happens to me every day. Oh, what you just described, it's amazing. It literally happens to me every day. And I'm like, 
sitting there like dumbfounded, but like sometimes glad that like, okay, I didn't say the thing that was in my head. But sometimes I have said it and my four-year-old will totally call me on it. She'll be like, mom, um, no, I had this idea and this was my idea. And I'm like, bless your heart. Thank you. Thank you. Fair enough. You are are correct. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then telling kids that they're right too, because like, I don't think, especially like, you know, even like going back to like our, our parents' generation when they were kids, like they never, you know, had somebody like sort of seed that um that maybe like kids are smarter than we gave them credit for type of thing even going back like 60 years it's like kids were not given any sort of like respect basically or like you were expected to be quiet or um seen but not heard right Mm -hmm. and those types of things which is incredibly unhealthy for the curiosity of the human mind Um, and so one of the things my dad always has said, like from day one is like, I talked to my kids, like they were adults in that, like, I just had a conversation with them and assumed they were smart. And if they had a question that they could ask me. And like, I think that's so much better than people just assuming that kids are dumb and that they don't understand what's going on. Right. Cause like, I remember my parents' divorce was a great example. I knew my parents were getting divorced a year before they were getting divorced. And then finally I just asked them one day, you know what I mean? Like, kids can read situations so well and are not dumb. They may not have the words to express everything. Right. Right. Exactly. And like, even if they find themselves in a stressful situation, you can tell that your child is trying to figure out what's going on and they can kind of test things out. Even like if something bad is happening and like, Oh, you know, daddy, like I saw that I saw that you're angry. Are you okay? Like, are you feel- like that's what my four-year-old is always calling us on. Like if we, if we do like get frustrated or things like that, they know they're not just sitting there, like sort of like in their own world, like they're feeling they're, you know, taking in all of so much more information than we are taking in about our surroundings. Like 100%. absolutely. Right. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Like I get very focused on like, like I can see you right now. And that's the only thing I can see. Like my children would be down here, like, Oh, like this little tiny thing over here and like this sound over here and that's too loud. And, you know, (laughs) um, but yeah, our brains are just, you know, better at like powering down. Um, you know, we have sort of that spotlight that, that happens when we need to actually direct our attention to something. Whereas kids have more of like, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, but like a candle glowing and you can kind of see everything. Um, kids are amazing. Yeah. I just, (laughs) that's one thing I want to come here to say. Um, but you know, they're also like, they are kind of unable to sort out some of the complexity. So like, you know how you said, like your, your dad talked to you like an adult, right? Like, so sometimes they are so smart that we can forget that they don't have the ability to understand that like, you know, mama's got all of these stressors going on over here. And so, you know, that's the reason why she's upset right now. Like, like I said earlier, like they just take it to be of them basically. And like, you know, their own fault. Um, And so they sort of see our actions as like a reflection of how we feel about them um, because we are the center of their world. Like they, they don't have any choice in the matter. They are here and they have to make the relationship work. So whether it's, you know, how sort of like how I grew up where it's like, I was constantly reading the emotional states of everybody in my house and I was the fire extinguisher, right? Like I was the one that was going to keep everybody calm. 
well, that's not a job for a child. Like, you know, we have to, we have to be able to work on our own stuff enough, hopefully by the time we have kids that, you know, it, it's not gonna throw us and we're not just going to be like completely dysregulated because if a child's home base is always dysregulated, then they just come to think like, that's just normal. And they, but they constantly have a dysregulated, you know, system too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we, we talk a lot about chaos seeking almost, and that's so common for people like us who grew up in a state of chaos or experienced a lot of like stress as children and then normal and regulated and calm feels absolutely bizarre and like not comfortable. I I mean, I use the example of my husband all the time. Who's just like a regular regulated person at all times. And I hated it for like a long time because I was like, no, this person's a weirdo. Like where's all of the like excitement and drama and like anger, right. That I grew up being used to that just doesn't exist for him. It's just not there. Well, and they also say that like, once you do like somebody who comes from sort of a background where, you know, like you said, it's like the chaos scene, and then you find like a stable relationship where things are not like dramatic all the time. It's like your, I don't know if this happened to you too, but like, it's almost like your trauma in like the first couple of years, like comes out even more. I know it happens to me with my relationship with my partner. And totally. I've apologized to him many times. <laughs> oh, for that, sure. But <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think now, I mean, we've been together five and a half years and we were like really close friends for a year before that. So like we've been like really close for like six and a half years. I feel like the first two to three years of that were probably like me trying to like push the boundaries and figure out where the chaos would be. And then now Mm -hmm. I've kind of just realized like, oh, there is none. And like, now I'm kind of good with the fact that there is none. It takes a long time to get used to that for sure. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing. Like when you do, cause this is my, my relationship currently is the first relationship I've ever been in where it's not constant chaos all the time. And like, you're kind of always waiting for the other foot to drop, right? You're like, Oh, where is it? It's going to come up. It's going to come up. And like your, your system or like, even it's like your own voice in your head, right? It's like, Oh, like just whispering to you, like, Oh, that maybe this is happening. Maybe they're cheating on me. Maybe they're doing this, this, this. And it's like, stop it. (laughs) You go over there. And like my nervous system always like, it does speak like in extremes. So I will be like, one thing will happen. and I'll be like, Oh my God, we're breaking up. And then, you know, like the, I don't know, 10 minutes later, I'd be like, okay, we're good. Like, no, we're a fairytale romance. Like, (laughs) yeah, this is actually the love story of the century. So I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And and then the poor other people are, they're just like, what the fuck? Fuck. Like they're like, what just happened? Where am I? <laughs> totally. <laughs> what is this? Like, don't worry about it. It is all. It's happening over here. It's totally. understandable. <laughs> so I don't. I don't want to like interrupt the story, but I'm very yeah. Curious because this that that whole like fairy tale to to like we're breaking up and you hate me situation is so classic BPD. So you said that you were diagnosed with PTSD in last year, right? Yeah. Like, so has borderline ever been actually like? discussed with you by a healthcare provider or a counselor? Like how did you kind of come to the realization of like even knowing what borderline was? So, okay. So like I had sort of told you, like I didn't really have all of the words to sort of discuss like the things that were happening in my life or like 
I didn't really realize that I was in that constant chaos until basically I was pregnant and I completely slowed down for the first time ever in my whole life. And I was like, oh, wow, I have been, like I said, exhausted. Just think that's the only word that I can think of. Um, and is that and your so, first pregnancy or your second pregnancy? That's my first pregnancy. Okay, yeah, gotcha. So that's my current, yeah, four-year-old. Yeah. So basically I listened to that book, the adult children um, of emotionally immature parents book. And then that sort of led me to trying to find like more resources, resources on like mental health and um, that type of thing. I think I was led to, you know, some support like websites, various places on Reddit (laughs) and sort of realized that, um, yeah, a lot of these um, behaviors or like family stories that people were talking about, oh my gosh, it was my life. And, and there were people that felt the same way that I did. And I had no idea that um, what I had been experiencing was something that, you know, was, was a common experience for a group of people. And so, yeah, then I was led into um, BPD and I started listening to like understanding the borderline mother, which was, you know, really interesting because I think that like my mom also has BPD. It tends to run in families, right? Yeah. Um, my dad for sure. Okay. See, I didn't know that. So yeah. Um, He's, he came on the podcast once actually, um, a I while back. To that one. Okay. Yeah, you should. Uh, cause I definitely yeah. need to, I mean that generation, like they, they, they would have never been diagnosed, especially a, a man, but he as our journey is an interesting one, but over the years has kind of been like, Oh shit. Like, yeah, I definitely have a mild form of this. And yeah, the, the severity is debatable. Let's be real here. But you know, okay. a, dif- a different it's a, presented it's form. A galaxy. Right. And yeah. Um, it's fun. It's interesting because yeah, men um, or, you know, people born into being men, right. Um, generally are not like even thought of in that uh, to be a part of the population, but like, it's actually like, there are a lot of people. And like for my dad, like he was diagnosed with bipolar, but it's debatable whether he really had that or if it, you know, he had a lot of substance abuse, like problems. So like he wouldn't sometimes go into a mania or um, really depressive state, but that sort of corresponded to withdrawals and things like that. And so Mm -hmm. it, it is like really hard to, um, to peace out because I think that it's possible that my dad also could have been, you know, dealing with borderline symptoms and especially like, um, splitting or like, you know, the black Mm -hmm. and white thinking, like that was classic. My dad, um, he would be like, Oh my gosh, this person's so amazing. And then they would do like one thing wrong and be like, they're the worst, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, but it runs in families and that's, you know, obviously anybody who's listening to this podcast, I think is somebody who is trying to work on like themselves and, um, you know, a lot of like your list or loved like, ones. Yeah. We yes, have, we have, we have a ones. lot of, yeah, we have a lot of people who are like, either we actually have some listeners that like have no connection to BPD at all, which I find really interesting, but there's like yeah. a, a shocking amount of people who are either providers or, um, or loved ones of people who have BPD or they think might have BPD and like, good for those people. Hey, to spend time trying to educate themselves and like understand. It's just so amazing. It really is. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm seriously like so grateful for anybody who is gonna like tell themselves the truth and face themselves with the fact that like life is a lot of hard work and then, you know, put dealing with BPD on top of just like 
life, which is generally already really hard, and then throw some kids into the mix, that is extremely difficult. And so I just like, I have so much empathy for anybody who is like trying to like work through all of these things and, you know, might have like little ones at home as well. And I'm just like, I want to say like, thank you. You are not alone. And also the work that you're doing now is going to come back tenfold. And so to keep on working in. I wanted to say, so I did listen to the episode that was recently put out with Sarah and um, they were talking about ADHD. I can't oh, remember yeah. the name of the, yeah. I can't remember yeah. the name of the guest that she was talking to. Um, Tal- Talon maybe? Yeah, Talon. Is that yeah. Uh Yeah. I think so. I think so. It's a really cool name. Okay. Don't quote me on that, but yeah. So, um, and so he was talking about some of the things that happen like in, in childhood with ADHD. Right. And he said something that really stuck with me. And he said something about your, your, your parents' ability to make you feel absolutely worthless is a real thing. Right. And so realizing the honor that it is right to be trusted as somebody's parent. And while it can come with like a lot of stress and a lot of things, you know, managing yourself in the face of their feelings and not just sort of thoughtlessly damaging your children, like that's amazing. And I just want to say that I'm, I'm really, really grateful for anybody who's taking those steps to, to stop, um, you know, intergenerational trauma and things like that. Yeah. And that's all we can do, right. It's like, we know that this kind of trauma is intergenerational, but like you know, that 70% thing that you were talking about earlier of like trying to do that, um, like use your skills and like be the best parent you can for that 70% of the time. I didn't want to interrupt you because you were like talking and it was so amazing. But the a fact that like, that's what they were saying is so awesome because we're so prone to black and white. Again, I'm not a parent. I, I have a cat and like, I literally can't even regulate with that thing. My God, cats are moody, but I mean, even, even just, you know, sometimes I'm the best cat mom ever. Other times, like, how does anybody let me have a pet? You can't possibly be the perfect thing to anybody, even yourself, 100% of the time. And 70% is an awesome goal. Like, can you imagine if both of our parents were 70% more skillful than they were? We probably would not be sitting here having this conversation. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Before we wrap up, I do want to say... So I am pretty passionate about preventing child sexual abuse. And there are a couple of steps that we can all take to make sure that this doesn't happen to our children. And so I just wanted to list a couple of those. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, using correct name for body parts is like the first one, right? Not shaming your child for like exploring their body, which they already start to do, even just like when they're an infant. Um, not shaming them for having to use the bathroom or being curious about bodies, um, talking about how all bodies are different and, um, children's bodies are different than adult bodies. Right. And those, those things, you know, are, are very different things. Teaching your child about boundaries and consent, making sure that you know your child really, so that you kind of can tell when something's off with them. And then, you know, also realizing that statistically the people that, abuse are the people that have access to your children. And like, generally it's somebody that, you know, right. So looking out for those like signs of grooming and things like that. And I think that those, if, if my parents had known those things, it would have saved a whole lot of pain. And so I just wanted to talk about that briefly and just, you know, encourage parents to 
you know, sort of get out of your shell and like, you know, a penis is a penis and a vulva is a vulva. And we can say those things and we can have our children realize that those are body parts, just like your elbow is a body part. A hundred percent. Yeah. I worked retail for a long time and I was at the same time taking a course because I was doing forensic psychology in university and I was taking a course specifically on child sexual abuse. And once I started seeing signs of children who likely had been abused, just you can tell by the way that they interact with mannequins and the way they interact with clothing. And it was heartbreaking and eye-opening. There wasn't a lot that I could do as like the random retail manager that was standing there, but for, for them to have actual words to describe what had happened to them or like what body parts that they were seeing would have been a complete game changer. And that was just like literally strangers that I could tell had experienced something that was not normal for their age. Let's just say that. Absolutely. And it happens, you know, unfortunately it happens a lot a lot more than we actually know and that ever gets reported. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, and like, I don't know the exact stat anymore, but like, yeah, you're right. People are often like really, really worried about random sexual assault that's happening and it happens and it's valid and it's really awful. Um, But most of the time it's somebody, you know, or somebody within your household. Right. And I'm wondering for me, for me, it was a coach. So like, also like, you know, realizing like, yeah, who has access to your children, who, like, are they spending time alone with, you know, are they going to a private lesson, make it, you know, not saying every single person is going to do this to your child, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's not going to happen. But also understanding, you know, the people that you're trusting to care for your children, and making sure that, that they're, you know, a proper person to be doing that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I wonder, you talked about grooming a little bit. And I think that that's yeah. something that a lot of parents maybe are aware of, I I mean, I'm speaking really from when I was a kid, maybe are aware of, but aren't necessarily like able to see the signs. Do you have any specific like tips or tricks for how parents can really identify that and realize who's a safe person? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one thing is that groomers or abusers are very good at figuring out who is going to be a good target. I was on a team where we basically would travel to hotels and different things where like the parents were not necessarily there all the time. And you were sort of with just like the coach. And so I think that he realized that there were a lot of things going on at home because hello, if you're with somebody like all the time, they just, you know, naturally you learn these things. And so I made for a a good target also because I had already experienced sexual abuse in my home when I was younger. and so the way that he started was like emailing me. So it was sort of like online. And then, you know, he would come over. I think he found a way to like come over to my house because he was like tutoring my brother or something like that. So that's sort of where it started, where then he would come up to my room and like, you know, it, but it definitely wasn't normal. And it definitely was, um, you know, another thing is like, yeah, if your kid all of a sudden is getting like very, very secretive about their electronics and things like that, Um, if they, you know, have gifts that are way more expensive than something that they would be able to afford, that's another really big one. Like, you know, because that's basically a groomer trying to win over like their attention, um, and you know, their good favor and stuff like that. Um, if your kid just has like caretaking, um, behaviors 
in general, right? Like if their if their personality is sort of one to, you know, want to take care of everybody and never say no. And if you haven't really talked about consent, if you haven't, you know, in your child in your household, if you maybe if you've talked about consent, but like you as a parent are not using those same rules for yourself, which can happen. So those are some, I would say, some of the like warning signs. Um, so yeah, for me, it, it caused like, you know, withdrawing from my social groups, like my peers, I all of a sudden, you know, I think that I was like dressing a little bit differently or like, um, a little bit like showing more from my age, which like, again, like, you know, people born as women, like we are scrutinized up and down. Right. So taking everything like with a grain of salt, like if your child just is wearing something because they want to be comfortable, like that is totally fine, you know? And so just really knowing your kid, knowing their values and knowing them enough to know when something's off with them. Yeah. And, and if there's adults that are having like a strange amount of access that doesn't feel right. Like, I mean, I, I strongly am one of those people who's like, you can sense vibes. At least I can. I think a lot of people with BPD feel this way is like, we are so aware of our surroundings and our impact on others that like, we can really sense these things in people. And so just like trusting your gut too. Yeah, absolutely. Trusting your gut. Well, I I feel like this has been the fastest hour of my life. I'm not like, I don't, (laughs) I don't, I do this a lot and I feel like that was a very fast hour. I appreciate you so much coming on and really sharing just like your own story, but then how you're really making that change for your own kids. And like, I'm sure that when they have kids, it will be the exact same thing. And we're going to 70%, you know, that really helps when you have five, six, seven generations down the line. Right. So yeah. Is there any final kind of thoughts that you want to share with us? parenting is very hard and it's tenfold when you also deal with really intense emotions. And also I think sometimes it's even like rethinking, do I want children? Like, or is this just what society has told me that I need to do to be valuable, right? Especially as people born as females. And sometimes it's like, wow, why do I even think that I want kids? Maybe I don't want kids kiddos have so much good inside of them and they need parents that are healthy. So do whatever you can to make sure that you are using your skills, your fact-checking situations. Yeah. Parents with BPD, generally you're going to have to work a little bit harder and it's a marathon. It's not a sprint, you know, making sure that you're also not letting that shame and guilt spiral get to you and sort of separating yourself from the things that happen. Like I am not bad because this thing happened and I can do things again. Kids are extremely resilient and they are extremely forgiving. And so as long as you're trying to do better the next day, they're going to be okay. Absolutely. I thank you so much for that. I think that's a beautiful way to end. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing all of your amazing wisdom here. And thank you for being the parent that you are. Your kids will thank you for it, even if they don't say it out loud. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful Borderline podcast. 
Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey, and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about Borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.